0: Hi, this is Joel Salatin. Welcome to the Probiotic Life.
1: This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, welcome once again to the probiotic life. I am your host. Ben Klenner. Today we have a fantastic interview with a fellow named John D. Liu. You definitely have to check his stuff out on YouTube. We're not talking about the microbiome, we're talking about the macrobiome, the entire biome, the uh, ecosystem. So he is a major advocate for ecosystem restoration. And I think I was inspired, first inspired by him, through a documentary he did called Hope in a Changing Climate and you can check that out on YouTube. It's free. Uh, Also Green Gold is a great documentary that he did Uh, but this is such a great interview. He, He went into so much detail and in fact we talked for over an hour and a half and I had trouble editing it down but this brought me to the idea that I'm going to start releasing two versions of the Episode, so there will be a one that's under an hour, and this is the one that's going to go up on iTunes. Uh, you've heard me talk. We're going to start doing the the paid advertisement just to help cover the costs of the show. But as well as that, I'm going to start the Patreon account so that you can have extended interviews with no ads. They'll be still edited in terms of audio quality, but they'll be up on Patreon. And let's see which way does better. If I can get all of the support through Patreon, that's the way I'll go. So, what do you think about that? Let me know. Give me a bit of feedback. And without further ado, here is the interview with John D. Liu. Our guest today is the Ecosystems Ambassador for the Commonland Foundation and a Visiting Research Fellow at the Netherlands Institute of Ecology and the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences. Welcome to the show, John D. Liu.
0: Thank you very much. Good to be here.
1: So... um, John, I, I've been inspired by some of your videos that you do. It's been something that you've been doing for a while here. I think probably the first one that I saw was um, Hope in a, cl- a Changing Climate. Um, thanks for coming on the show today. Would you like to, to share a little bit about uh, where you are today and, and how did you become an a, ambassador of the Commonland Foundation?
0: Right. Well, um I'm in Beijing, China, today, but um, next week I'll fly to Egypt. Um, the the way I got here, I guess, uh, I came to China when I was 26 years old, and I helped to open the CBS News Bureau. I had uh, left college to... Become a news cameraman. Uh, I came overseas. I helped op- the, open the CBS News Bureau in China at the time of normalization of relations between China and the United States. I worked for about a decade for CB- with CBS, and then I worked with um, Radio Televisione Italiana, Italian state television, and I also worked with Zweites Deutsches Fernsehen, the German television. And uh, then after about fifteen years of being a journalist, the World Bank asked me to go out to the Lus plateau. So you saw hope a in a changing climate, and you you saw the transition of the degraded landscape in the Lus plateau to a you know sort of functional, much more functional landscape with vegetation and moisture infiltration and you know microclimates and so on and so. When I saw that, I had just covered the rise of China and the collapse of the Soviet Union and international terrorism for 15 years, and I looked at this ecological changes and I thought, "Oh my goodness, this is much more important than the sort of egos that, you know, the the arrogance and the hubris that governments and finance and industry are, are all participating in, which is really more about manipulating other people or having power over other people or amassing material possessions for individuals or, or groups. And I realized that in the next generation, say 500 years from now or 1,000 years from now, no one will remember who were the rich people or what, uh, you know, who, who had power over other people but they will experience in their lives the understanding, the consciousness that we achieve, and the actions that we take at this time. So this made me change my career from being a journalist to start to research about ecology. And in this period, when I started to study ecology, I, was, I found that it was infinitely fascinating that I, could, I, I, I was very naive because I had pretty much dropped out of college to be a cameraman, and then I, I started to study. And I didn't have an understanding that I was going to have to study evolutionary theory, geology, chemistry, botany, microbiology, atmospheric science, uh, climate, and I, you know all all of these things. I, I didn't really realize it, but because I didn't know that, it was kind of easy. <laughs> because I just would learn something, and that would lead to something else, and I would just keep going. And after a while, I had actually been studying about and documenting, observing, documenting for about a decade. <laughs> and the at that point. First the World Bank, but then later the British government, the Department for International Development, was funding me to, to carry on this research. And the Department for British Department for International Development said, okay, that's enough. You have to give a, a lecture at an academic <laughs> conference. And I'd never done that before. But I thought, okay. I'll do, I'll do that. So I went and presented at an academic conference, and it kind of showed that there were significant results in this work. So at that point, I got invitations to, to, to go and get fellowships. So I've now had a, a number of fellowships. Um, all over in, in, in a number of, of places. The University of the West of England was the first, and then Rothamsted Research Institute in the U.K., and then uh, I, four years of study in a graduate program at University of Reading, and then the um, International Union for the Conservation of Nature and the Critical Zone Hydrology Group, and now I'm, I'm at the Netherlands Institute of Ecology. So... I've been able to spend 23 years and I'm not done yet. so I just keep, I just keep learning and, and as I've been learning and as I, I, I just have come to the belief that knowledge is a right, not a commodity. So basically everything that I learn, I, I just try to publish and send it out and into the world. and um, that's affected people. Maybe, I mean, you've seen it. <laughs> And other mm-hmm. people have seen my stuff, and so they, you know, it it, it it takes on a life of its own once it leaves, you know, I've produced something and it goes out. And um, what I see now is that this thinking, where I was very much alone when I started to talk about the things that I'm talking about, they're more and more... Uh, becoming understood, and more and more people are agreeing with it. So it's rising. The thought is rising up. And that's good. That suggests that the future for humanity will include this understanding. And that's how I became. In one speech I gave in Sweden, it was a very important uh, forum. It's called the Tallberg Forum. And people like the under Undersecretary General of the United Nations or the head of the European Environment Agency or the chairman of IUCN that's the audience and I presented to this group and it it was it stopped them in their tracks because they'd really been talking about the past history and the development of the conservation movement which cannot actually be called a success because There's more pollution, more climate impacts, more biodiversity loss, you know. So when I presented, it was talking about the future. It was talking about, look, we have a task, and this task is definable. We know what it is, and we have the ability to do it. We just have to, you know, understand what we have to do and do it. So at at that point, in the audience was the, the CEO of the, now the CEO of the, Common Land Foundation. He was the country director for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature in in the Netherlands, and he came to me and he said, "We have to work together for the rest of our lives." And I said, well, "Okay, but that's not long enough." <laughs> and since two thousand and nine, we've been working together.
1: Wow! So, so that's interesting that you came through this journey where you. First off, dropped out of um, college to go be part of the media and a cameraman. And now so many, um, so much of academia is actually interested in what you're doing. What, what is it about um, what you do that is uh, really captured their attention?
0: Well, um, I mean, first of all, there were significant results. So I was asked to document the rehabilitation of the Lus Plateau. And in a way, it's quite symbolic because it's the the birthplace of the Chinese race, one of the great civilizations of, of human history. And it was fundamentally ecologically destroyed. And when they made an analysis, they invested and they they began to do restoration it became clear it's possible to rehabilitate large scale damaged ecosystems and this is really important because all the the cradles of civilization are massively degraded so if you go to greece or you go to egypt or you go to you know the mayan empire you, know, you go all these places and they're there's ruins all over the place. You know, dust is blowing over the ruins of once great civilizations, and we have to ask some questions about this. Is is the outcome of human civilization an inevitability? Is it inevitable that human beings degrade their ecosystems? And the fact is, no. You know it, that that's dependent on our understanding and our intention. So we have intended to extract and manufacture and buy and sell things and to accumulate as much material things to ourselves as possible in the past and this is not really a very good idea. So that many people talk about the linear economy and the circular economy and Basically, that's what we've done. We've, we've, we've looted the planet. You know, we've, we've extracted and manufactured and bought and sold things. And when we're done with those things, we've thrown them on the trash heap. Well, in nature, in evolution, there is no waste. Everything, each generation of life dies and gives up its body to nurture the next generation. And there is a constant accumulation. So now, or when human beings emerged as the dominant species, we only began to do settled agriculture 10 to 12,000 years ago. Look at the relationship between 10 to 12,000 years and 4.567 billion years. So when we when we look at this, it's not a surprise. And then you look at, say, like soil infertility. Well, where does soil fertility come from? Soil fertility has clearly come from microbiologic communities, which release nutrients from mineral deposits, from geologic materials, and make them available to to biological life. And if we the, the habitat for these microbial communities is the decaying remains of each generation of biological life well if you devegetate vast areas of the planet and the sunlight directly hits the exposed soils and there is no organic layer then you've massively changed infiltration and retention of, of moisture, you've massively changed gas exchange between the oxygenated atmosphere and, and the biological systems, and you've massively changed the you know, biodiversity. All all of these things are are altered. So you know That's what you see is understandable, but we're not looking at it because we're interested in our buildings and our roads and our vehicles and our our sales figures for the first quarter and, you know, that sort of thing. But that sort of thing is not determining the air, the water, the food, the energy on the planet, which are the life support systems for humanity and all life. So... And now, if we think about it, or if we study it, we can understand it. We can understand why these systems are functional. We understand quite a lot about ecological function. There's a lot more to study. It's infinitely fascinating. I recommend everyone to study as much as possible. And we all need to have a collective consciousness about this. This is not Mm -hmm. about expert understanding. This is about the collective consciousness of humanity being aware of these things this must be literacy not expert information it's we're in a time like the time of the transition from flat earth to round earth you know and so if we don't understand how the ecosystems function then it's okay to throw as much shit as you want in the fresh water or dump toxic wastes into the, into the soils and into the water and into the air. That, why not? What could go wrong there? Well, if you do understand it, you don't want to put anything. No zero. There's no tolerance, no allowable amount of toxic material. You want to be absolutely clean. So consciousness makes it impossible to pollute and degrade. The only way you can pollute and degrade the landscape or the earth or the earth systems is to believe that the things that you extract, manufacture, and buy and sell are somehow more valuable than the natural systems that create created life, constantly filter all the systems and continuously renew the atmosphere, the hydrological cycle, the soil fertility, and the biodiversity. So it's it's clear to me after <laughs> decades of studying it that this is the most valuable thing on the on the planet. The the earth systems, the functional earth systems, are more valuable than anything human beings have ever made, and everything that human beings will ever make. Because you know, whether we have a lovely digital recording device here or an iPad or an iPhone or a, um, an airplane or whatever we have, it's going to turn to junk really rapidly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really just junk. It's a question of time. You know, it's a collection of materials, and it will fall apart. But natural evolutionary systems are consistently accumulative, they get better. When the Earth was a molten rock, it didn't have an oxygenated atmosphere. It generated an oxygenated atmosphere by photosynthesis, in you know massive photosynthesis over huge prodigious time. Well, that's nice. And then human beings emerge and don't know that. And think, well, let's just cut down this forest, or let's just you know, do whatever you want to do. But there's a terrible price to pay for that kind of thinking.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, John, it sounds like you've done a lot of learning um, in terms of like academic learning, but it sounds like there's also that learning um, from being out in nature, from being um, observing, like you said, was there one moment that really made an impact of you when you're out in nature that you really had a revelation about something?
0: Well, there are many, many of those. So once you start down this line, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, it's infinitely fascinating. So, you know, you, you're, in a, in a sense, I felt a little bit like a detective in when I was looking at the degraded landscapes. So I was looking at at the ruins of once great civilizations. And once you do that, you you kind of have a crime scene, you know, and you you look at it and you you go, well, you know, it was the butler in the dining room with the candlestick. Because you know, you, you see who it was, you see what it was that they did, you you see when they did it, and you see the result of it. And you have to, you see that first you see the result of it, and then you go backwards and, and you understand it. And then you kind of go, well, all right, if you didn't do that, what would happen? And the fact is that we know very well what what are the results of ignorance and greed. So if we just want to amass material possessions to ourselves and we want to have separation and di- differentiation between ourselves and other people, like with classes or material possessions then or power over others, then we, we see the result now. It's deserts, it's war, It's it's misery and what we what we haven't completely got our mind around is that there's there's a whole other outcome from consciousness and generosity and that it's beautiful that there's no reason to degrade the natural systems the natural systems are eternal and they are miraculous and it's paradise so you know, if as long as we kind of get into this understanding and, and appreciate it and value it, there it is for us. It's when we don't, when we value other things, which are lesser things, we bow to lesser gods. When we do that, then,
1: you know, that's how we degrade. I'd love for you to actually share a little bit about this this paradise and and paint a picture about how the the world can be with humans living in a, in a, in a regenerative sort of way but could you first because because not too long ago I was in the place where I didn't understand why biodiversity was important why ecosystem restoration was important to my my um, my health to my um, our communities. I know that you've talked about that a bit but can you can you really paint that picture for people who who haven't haven't understood about biodiversity
0: Yeah um you know obviously that is something which is very very difficult to communicate because human beings have spent quite a long time consistently reducing biodiversity and the reason human beings have spent this time consistently reducing biodiversity is they never understood it. Um, I, I like to talk about the beginning of agriculture. So the beginning of settled agriculture, you know, if you, if you really think about it, everyone who's alive today is, is the descendant of hunter-gatherers, is the descendant of semi-nomadic herders, is the descendant of settled agriculturalists, and settled agriculture began ten to twelve thousand years ago. The Lus Plateau was one of the places where it began. Mesopotamia was another. There was another area in the in the South America, um, but you know it's interesting about this is who who are we following? Where did the traditions for settled agriculture come from? And I, I like to say they came from Og. Og I think was a Neanderthal. He was a Neanderthal with a sharpened stick. And his idea was, you know, he saw one plant and it had a heavy, heavy load of seeds hanging off of it. And he started eating it and he thought, that's what I want. I want wheat. <laughs> I want rye. I want, you know, all these heavy rice, all these seed things that I know what they are. I'm, I'm going to eat them. And the other plants that were there with them, he didn't know what they were. So he said, well, what are these other plants? Well, I don't know, and I don't care. I don't want them. I'll just kill them. So he took his sharpened stick, and he started killing the other plants. And then he started spreading the seeds from the plant that he wanted, and of course more you know of that plant grew. And what happened was he did several things at once. He created plowing well, there are no exposed soils in natural systems, except maybe, well, in, in naturally occurring deserts or in, in um, catastrophic geologic events like volcanoes or earthquakes or something. Um, so he exposed the soils. And he did that now for ten to 12,000 years. And when you do that, well, you're releasing a lot of moisture, (laughs) you're changing things. He also created monocultures. He started spreading that plant that he wanted and killed the others. And, you know, that's ridiculous. He had no clue what he was doing. And all the farmers to follow followed Aug. And they said, well, my grandfather did it. Uh, You know, my father did it. I do it. Well, maybe we should not be following Og, mm-hmm. because biodiversity is vastly more productive than monocultures. And certainly diverse systems are more moist, more resilient, more, they're, they're, they're just fundamentally better. So nature organized for an evolutionary outcome. And human beings organize for a cultural outcome.
1: Mm-hmm. And the um, you know you've been really spearheading this uh, sh- uh, portrayal, this uh, showcasing of what c- can be done w- w- as we can raise our uh, collective consciousness, as it were. Um. So what what are some of the things that you're working on right now? Um, or doing right now that, that are really that are giving people hope?
0: Well, I think that in in the first place, common land is working on a model to restore or to create a regenerative economy. So now we have an economy where it's possible to damage the natural earth systems and believe that somehow we're making a profit. Actually, there is no profit. The only way that you get profit at this time is if you externalize the impacts. So if you do that and you say, well, they're off the books, then... You can pretend that there's profit. But the fact that you say that they're off the books doesn't mean that they're not internal, they're not happening. And my mother tells, my 98-year-old mother tells a story that Abraham Lincoln is talking to a young boy and he says to the boy, if you have a dog and you call the dog's tail a leg... How many legs does a dog have? And the boy says, five. And Abraham Lincoln says, well, no. The dog has four legs because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are with externalities. There are no such thing as externalities. That's ludicrous. It's just a lie. Air, water, biodiversity, soil fertility cannot be zero. It's impossible, but that's the way it is in the global economy. And when we actually give air, water, soil fertility, and biodiversity a value, it has to be higher than things. So how are we going to go to another, another reality? Common land is working on what's called the four returns. So it's 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 analyzing this and it's saying, well, you, you only want a return on investment. So you pretend that you have a return on investment now with the existing economy. But there's enormous impacts. There's a lot of depression, drug taking, nihilism, suicide, war, migra- migrations. So we don't want that. We want to be have a meaningful life. So that's inspiration. So one return of the four returns is the return of inspiration. The second return is the return of social capital so that we can actually have jobs for everybody and a happiness in our communities, regular normal relations with with people. And the third is Natural capital, the return of, of functionality to water resources, to soil fertility, to biodiversity. And then because of those other three, you get a return on investment. So this is a holistic um, economic system. So that's one of the things which I think is very hopeful. And we're very happy that uh, common land is like a a leader in the world in designing ways to modify human economics to become regenerative. Another thing that I'm working on is the ecosystem restoration camps. And the ecosystem restoration camps is recognizing that a lot of people are starting to understand and when they start to understand, look, we're, we're, we're damaging the climate, the oceans, you know, ocean acidification, thermal expansion, the melting of the permafrost. I mean, there's so many problems, pollution, toxic pollutions. So we need to act as a species on a planetary scale, the window of opportunity to correct the rather serious consequences which science is is seeing are predictable now is very short. So we don't have 20 years. We don't have like 100 years or 50 years. We don't even have 20 years. We need to act immediately. So how can we engage the largest number of people in this activity? And I've been puzzling about that for some time. And a couple of years ago, I went, aha, we could start ecosystem restoration camps. And that all we really need is the basic infrastructure to house and feed people. And an invitation, well, do we really need permission to restore the earth? (laughs) But, you know, we need a place to stay. So if there's a place which is highly degraded and there's a piece of land and people say, well, why don't you put some people there and start doing restoration? Okay, So if we're invited anywhere where there's degradation, we should go there and we should build a camp. And anybody who wants to go to that camp should be fed three meals a day and have a warm and comfortable place to sleep and have a few hours of work every day making the earth better. And the rest of the time is there for recreation and self-study and really good food and lots of fun with everyone else. And, you know, that is a real life for a lot of people. And that's better than sitting around and watching, you know, YouTube or Facebook or the TV or wondering, you know, what am I going to do about things? I have no, nothing I can do. Go there, learn the skills for infiltrating and retaining moisture and growing regenerative, you know, perennial polycultures and and uh, how to restore soils. Learn all these things. Learn how to do to, to conflict resolution. Imagine having the skills to rapidly build a camp feed everybody in the camp, have sanitation, grow the grow the food for the people who are in the camp, and restore the landscape. Imagine that. Do we need that? Absolutely we need that. We need that in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Central Asia. We need that all over the world. So, this then becomes the new normal. This becomes the collective consciousness of humanity and it's fun and everybody eats and there's peace on the earth and if we don't work in this way i think we're headed for war i think we're headed for massive collapses look at the at the gigantic storm things that are happening they're increasing in in intensity and they're increasing in frequency. That's extremely dangerous. And can we do anything about that? Absolutely. Winds are caused by temperature differentials. The temperature differentials between devegetated landscapes and, leg- and vegetated landscapes are enormous. We have to revegetate all degraded landscapes. So if there was a place that was once called the Land of Milk and Honey or the Garden of Eden, well, I think that better be a garden. If that's a desert, then I think you're going to, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're definitely going to suffer. You, we are suffering now from this. And what the Chinese have shown is that if you put your mind to it and you understand the natural systems and you don't mind working for years and decades and generation after generation decides to do it you it's possible for human beings to restore large scale degraded ecosystems well if we can restore large scale degraded ecosystems why don't we do that you know that's the way forward and that you know as an individual i never felt so energized as being part of something which is regenerating life on earth. So being part of material possessions or monetary flows or power politics, spheres of influence is, is a lesser calling, I would say. And it's a lot of fun to work together When you see a stream flow In a, in a place where the, the stream had gone dry And you restore the soils And re- restore the vegetative cover And in a few years The stream comes back and flows again Well, that's pretty good <laughs> You know, there, That's what we need to see We need to understand that We can affect that we caused it to go dry and we can cause it to, to regenerate. We need to do that.
1: It's really exciting to, to uh, hear you talk about this, John, because my heart is there too to, to see that. And um, I guess part of the probiotic life is just encouraging people to, just to get out in nature, just, just, to, just to observe, just to let your mind slow down and, and, and be a part of that be a part of, or, or at least realize that you are a part of the, the um, ecosystem around you, that you're not separate from that. So what, how can people do that? Like, you know, I, I live in a, in a little villa in, in suburbia. Um, ha, how can we start with, with where we're at right now?
0: Well, I think, you know, certainly you have to, there, there are certain principles And these principles are pretty much the same. You need to realize that they're not that difficult. It's biodiversity, biomass, and accumulated organic material. And within the organic material are microbial communities. Beneath a closed canopy is a microclimate. So the temperatures, the humidity the infiltration and retention of moisture, the nutrient release, nutrient absorption, they're all regulated by these things. And so fertility, biodiversity, biomass, they're all organic layer. They're all the same. They don't exist in isolation. They only exist together. That's true in cities. That's true in the countryside. That's true on the earth We have to start looking and seeing, well, have we covered up all the earth now and there's no way for the water to infiltrate? Are we building storm sewers to try to push the water away? We should be absorbing that water into the ground, not having it run away as fast as it can. We're dehydrating our biome. So when we do that kind of thing, we're doing exactly what the ancient civilizations where the dust is blowing over the ruins did. And we're going to suffer the same fate unless we we (laughs) learn and get out of that. And now it's our time and we're required to do our best to contribute whatever we can to the sum of human knowledge. Because we're passing through. We're going to die. We're leaving this planet. And human civilization, our descendants, will live. And the quality of their life will be determined by how much we've understood and what we did to address many of the huge mistakes that human beings have made in the past. This is very much connected to our our history. And You know, if you read the sacred texts, then you see, like if you look at the Judeo-Christian-Islamic tradition in the cosmology, human beings emerge in paradise. Well, if I look at evolution, over 4.567 billion years ago, the earth formed and then biological life uh, emerged to colonize the entire planet photosynthesis created an oxygenated atmosphere and a hydrolo- you know a freshwater system soil fertility and beautiful biodiversity and then human beings emerge human beings emerge in paradise in both an evolutionary uh, scenario or in in the cosmology that is written in the sacred texts. So they don't disagree. And that means that the second part in the in the sacred text probably needs to be thought about. Because it says, and then human beings sinned and were cast out of the garden. And so what's that about? I mean, the snake and the apple and all that, I, I don't really get that. But if it's not literal, it's a poetic metaphor, then I think I know what original sin is. I think it's the reduction of biodiversity, which leads to the reduction of biomass, which leads to the reduction in the accumulation of organic material, because this changes everything and paradise is lost. Well, if we learn this If we understand this and collectively we act on this knowledge, then the garden is returned to the earth. I think this is our duty. We're required to understand this. This is the difference between misery and joy. So let's be happy. Let's be joyous. Let's let's restore the garden. Not let's make more deserts and degrade the landscapes. So that's, we have that in our power, but it must be our intention. If our intention is to buy and sell things, we'll buy and sell things. But if our intention is to restore the earth, we'll do that. I think that's our duty.
1: Very interesting, you know, uh, that makes me think of the difference between um a probiotic life and an abiotic life or a uh, positive feedback loop and a negative feedback loop is what you're talking about really, isn't it? Yes.
0: And I think, you know, I think a lot of people are not clear. You know, when the, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you've got a virus or you've got a b- bacterial infection, you need an antibiotic. And people go, okay, you know, they don't know what an antibiotic is. It's against life. Well, you know, definitely we want to be on the side of life. We want to choose life. We need life. Life, we're breathing air, we're drinking water, we're eating food. Any pollutant that's in the air, in the water, in the soil, it, we're filtering. We're bivalves. We're like clams or something we're taking in the pollutants and filtering them in the organs of our body so let's not have any pollution let's not it's not necessary we we if we learn and get to this point and if we value it and if we understand that everyone is equal we need to explore what is the result of consciousness and generosity this is where we, the, the future leads if there is a future <laughs> because I think you have to look at the, at the data and say there's a high risk we're facing we have, from a scientific perspective, there is there are predictable catastrophic outcomes that can be seen from the behaviors that we're engaged in now we have seven and a half billion people. We're adding a billion people every twelve years. It's necessary for us to move to the next level of consciousness.
1: Hmm. It's um. It's something to ponder about. Something that I've been um pondering for a while too. And um, with I'd like to get your thoughts on this on the on the probiotic life. You know, um, trying to really connect people. Um, who are who might just be more interested in their health? Um, I think there everybody wants to do good, but uh, when it comes to actually taking action, people will do good for themselves first, um, and then connecting people's health directly back to the soil or back to the ecosystems. Uh, what do you think about that idea of living a probiotic life, connecting people? showing them their direct the link between their health and the soil.
0: Well, I think it's critical to to do that, but I think it's important to recognize the difference between consciousness and and a meme. You know, we need to be very clear that there is a great deal to understand, and in in the society we're bombarded with marketing. You know, like in in the development world, I've had to listen to people, and they are certain that climate smart agriculture <laughs> is is the solution, or integrated watershed management, or agroecology, or regenerative agriculture, whatever, you know, perennial polycultures. You know, we have to be careful that we're, we're not trying to create a meme. We want to connect people to a holistic understanding of life. And, you know, that's a beautiful term Probiotic. I think I I also like it because the antibiotic is so misunderstood. I don't think really people know what it means. The the doctor gives it to them and they think, okay, and they don't understand that that's about killing all the life and, and that you're a symbiont that inside your your gut are millions of bacteria and if you're feeding it antibiotics then you know you're killing your the, the allies that you have in your gut. But um but on the other hand, you know, that's a great term and it's 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 speaking to think but you want understanding. You want consciousness. You don't simply want people to go, well that's a cute word. You know, so um they will have to understand a lot that there are multiple systems, and they are symbiotic systems that are working together. That we are multiple species. So we're you know, we, we talk about human beings, but we're really not a single species. We're in symbiotic relationship with other species in our body. And so you know, what is life? You know, I, I over my entire lifetime, people have been mad at me because I said I, I when I was young, I kept asking them, like what is the meaning of life? And they would say, Well, you're not supposed to ask that. Why not? <laughs> we have to ask that, you know. We we need to know. I wanna know. And uh, I think that they're worried about that because they don't know what is the meaning of life and on one hand you have faith and people who have a lot of faith but that might not be understanding and in fact it is the you know they in the sacred text it talks about the peace that passes understanding and in the eastern kind of religious beliefs there is mystery at the edges And it's okay. You stand before the mystery. It's okay. Um, I think we're in a place where we have a tremendous amount of experience and a tremendous amount of education and a tremendous amount of technology and a tremendous amount of data. And what are we doing with that data? What are we doing with our technology? We're trying to buy and sell things. We don't need more stuff. We need functional ecosystems. And we can have functional ecosystems. If our intention is to buy and sell things, we'll do that. If our intention is to have functional ecosystems, we'll do that. This is about human civilization coming to grips with what its intention must be for there to be a future for our children or our children 's children we need to we need to protect all living things, so you know the the meaning of probiotic is very good, but let's make sure that those who who follow this concept are dedicated to a, a holistic and deep and profound understanding of what that means
1: mm, so more than just creating another a catchphrase or a, a, a meme it's about learning it's about well as you said technology the way I understand it is it's like the mycelium where we're all connected and now we have the opportunity to learn. How would you say uh, people go about learning and, and, and how, do, how do we filter out this information?
0: Well I really like the idea of collaborative learning. I think that the more we talk about this, the more we collaboratively learn together. And I love the idea of ecosystem restoration camps because in the in the ecosystem restoration camps, you have people who all of them are just talking about this every day. So this is what they deal with every day. They're saying, "Oh, look, we're you know what kind of soils have we got here." You know, look at the color. Look at the amount of organic material. Shall you know what shall we do? We'll, we'll use compost teas. We'll use fungal uh, uh, you know applications. We'll use rock dust. We'll use whatever we you know, composting whatever we need to increase the fertility, to increase the carbon, to change you know the humic humic acids in the soils. And it works. Once they start To think this way, if that's their intention, they're going to change that into dark, rich, you know, fertile soil really fast. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think about it, it's going to stay geologic materials which have been degraded over centuries and millennia. So, you know, there's no other way for us but to physically do this. It's not a virtual problem. It's a physical disruption to ecological systems on a planetary scale. That's human impact. And, you know, it's not simply CO2 emissions coming out of industrial stuff. That's a part of it, but that's definitely not the majority of it. The fact of the matter is, in greenhouse gases, I think uh, CO2 is only 27%. I think high-altitude Moist air that's unproductive, that's been driven into the high altitude by thermal, you know, heat, temperature differentials on the planet, on the Earth's surface, is a bigger greenhouse gas. It's 60% of the problem compared to the CO2, which is 27% of the problem. So, you know, we need to get our mind around this. We can't just... Grasp at partial understandings. We need to study it. And when you do study it, you find, well, I can understand this. I'm still not too sure about this. I'm reaching the edge of my understanding here and there. But we know so much that actually we know a tremendous amount. And the question is, we, we know enough to act now And we know that we're going to have to continue to study. So why not do what we know, and we know we're going to have to physically do that. We We have to infiltrate and retain moisture all around the world. All the dehydrated biomes need to be rehydrated. That is the Mediterranean. That is North Africa. That is the Middle East. That is the Sahel. That is Central Asia. That is parts of Central America, the southwest of the United States. That's a lot of Australia. Can we do this? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's evidence littering the place that we can do this. We do this. It's also revegetation because that's the same process. It's also increasing organic layer in the soil because that's the same process because they're symbiotic relationships. So if we physically do that together, we will know all about this. And, you know, then we, we'll restore the entire earth. And I, 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 I kind of came to this conclusion, and it made me very happy when I realized it, that it's not the institutions. It's not the capital formations. It's the people and their understanding and their intention that will restore ecology on the earth.
1: Uh, that sounds so hopeful, John, that, that we can actually do something about it. Like you said, get our hands dirty and, and, um, and we'll definitely put up the links to the ecosystemrestorationcamps.org and uh, the other ones as well. But uh, I, I, when you say that, I come away with uh, a feeling of hope. Like, yes, there's actually something that each individual person can do.
0: That's right, and there's something we can do immediately. And I think when we, when we are inspired to do something, we need to have the opportunity. Everybody needs to have the opportunity to immediately put it into practice, not wait a year or two years or five years. We need to be able to do it right away. And I think the, the, what I've noticed is that the ecosystem restoration camps, this is the least expensive and the most effective way to, to do this. So meeting meeting in a hotel or in a conference center to discuss how you're going to do it is not nearly as good as going out and sitting by the fire in the evening and then waking up early in the morning and going out and, and restoring you know, land, landscapes, restoring watersheds and increasing soil fertility and propagating and planting out biodiversity. It's the real thing. And so that's what we need to do. And the more people who join this movement and the more people who join this movement who realize this is their movement, <laughs> when they join it, it's theirs. And it's, it's everybody together. And then suddenly you realize, oh, this is people from all over the world. This is people from every part of the world. And we're all equal. And we're all working together. Well, that's a good thing. That's that's the next level that we need to reach there in terms of, of, of sociology, in terms of psychology, in terms of equality. So we need to do this from a perspective of ecology, but we also need to do this so that we really learn to live together in peace. Because if we don't learn to live together in peace and we don't restore the ecology... I think the other the other outcomes look really really dangerous.
1: For sure. John you've uh, you've given me lots to chew on and I, I think uh same with our listeners there's there's lots that you have uh you've shared your wisdom with us and, and, and imparted hopefully imparted some wisdom to us. Uh what I hear is raising the collective consciousness? Was there, is there one thing that you'd like to leave with our listeners today?
0: Well, um, I think we're at the cusp of a new era in human civilization. And this new era in human civilization is most definitely one in which we are conscious of how ecological systems function and we understand their value, so that also means that human economy must change because human economy now values things higher than the earth and life so that 's a mistake we've we 've made a mistake, and that mistake is so enormous, so huge, that a lot of people think we can't we can 't tackle it but the fact is, we must tackle it, because it is what's driving the destruction. So, in journalism, I was a journalist for a long time before I started studying ecology, and you you consider who, what, when, and where. And I know all of that. I got through that, and that took me to why, who, what, when, where, why. Why does this happen? And this happens because we have been selfish and we have been ignorant. And so we know the result of ignorance and and, uh, selfishness. Now we need to learn what is the result from consciousness and generosity. This is usually, it's the inverse so it looks like it's paradise. It looks like it's joyous. It looks like it's what we need to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I really appreciate your time to, to share with us this and, and give us this value, this, this um, stuff to help us to raise our awareness, to raise our consciousness. So thank you so much, John, for your time.
0: You're welcome, and I hope it's useful. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks again, John. That has been very inspiring for us. Um, And thanks for laying out what the problem is, but also the solution. And as always, the links will be in the show notes. And let us know what you think. What did you connect with in this episode? What stood out to you? We always love it when you give us a rating and review on iTunes. So if you haven't done that already, that would be great. And we love connecting with you all. So thank you very much for listening to The Probiotic Life. Much love and many blessings on you all. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.
0: i think uh like uh your your wife uh my relatives are tired of me talking about soil and corn mm-hmm. <laughs> so